0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit providencetx.org.
1: So again, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. If you can and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32 says this. "'assuming that you have heard about him "'and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, "'to put off your old self, "'which belongs to the former manner of life "'and is corrupt through deceitful desires, "'and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind "'and to put on the new self, "'created after the likeness of God "'in true righteousness and holiness. "'Therefore, having put away falsehood, "'let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, "'for we are members one of another.' by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated.
0: Good morning, everyone. Big happy Father's Day to you if you're a dad in the room. I hope you wore your George this morning, your white New Balances, and just let it all hang out this morning at church. Uh, or maybe you'll do that whenever you get home, but it's your day, so you do you. Uh, like Ty said, we've been working through the back half of Ephesians together, uh, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, as we've been talking about Paul's vision given to him by God for how the church should do life together. And so last week we, we mentioned something, and I think it bears mentioning again before I jump in and pray, and it's this. In order for us to really glean everything that we would love to glean from this series, I think it's important that we pray that God would give us his vision for the bride, his vision for the church. All of us, if you're you're in church right now, so whether you have church experience or not, you now have it. And hopefully it's been okay. Uh, But for the most part, we've all had both good and bad experiences in the church. And so if we're not careful, what can happen is when we talk about the church, we talk about it through the lens of our good and bad experiences and all of the in-between. But God has a vision for the church, his people, which is illustrated in the book of Revelation, saying that in the end, the church is a spotless bride unto God. Meaning that God's vision of the church is something beautiful and great and amazing and matchless. And that's what he's bringing and making us into. And if we have that vision too, then we'll pursue that. And we'll say that that's a worthy thing for us to pursue. But if we go into this thinking of the church only in the discombobulated versions of church experience that we've had, then we probably aren't going to have as much passion about trying to be the church in that way. So I want to pray before we jump in. God, give us your vision for the church, the the vision that you had in your heart when you gave up your life for us on the cross. So if you'll bow your heads, I'm going to pray that for us, then we're going to hop in. Oh, Father, thank you. First, on Father's Day, we want to thank you, Lord, that you have made us your children, that you love us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't have to run anywhere else. and We thank you for the dads in the room, that we can look to you for guidance not just as an example, but for the power to live in such a way that displays your love to our very own kids and our very own spouses, our very own families. And I thank you, Lord, that every single one of us are able to experience the Father's love, and so we ask that we would this morning. And then secondarily, Lord, we do pray that you would give us your vision for your bride, your church, your people that when we see each other and when we think about church, whether we think about Sunday mornings or groups or programs, but that ultimately we would think about you and you being willing to shed your blood for us and to make us into a new people. And so as we come to your scriptures, open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes. Give us that heart that we so desperately need and give us the ears to hear that we know our our flesh is prone to stop up our ears so we just ask that you'd help us God help us to hear you and in so doing give us life this Father's Day we ask in Jesus name amen amen okay so let's start verse number 17 Paul kicks off here in this paragraph by saying now this I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their minds. This happens rarely in the Bible, but it's a powerful moment. Paul just said in one sentence what he's about to explain for the rest of the paragraph. This first sentence kind of frames the entire conversation. He's hearkening back to, if you guys remember in our first sermon of this series, Corey preached out of Ephesians 4, chapter number 1, where Paul says that we ought to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And then he does what Paul does. He went on like a rant for like 15, you know, verses of a run on. And then he comes back to it, right? And he comes back to it and says that we must walk not as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So in one way he was saying, hey, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. That's the positive definition. Now he's coming to tell you the negative definition. This is what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like walking in the futility of of your mind. Now, there's an important Christian doctrine here that if you're if you grew up in the Bible belt at all, you've probably heard some version of it. Maybe you haven't. But Christianity is built upon this premise that there's the old self that's corrupt along with all of its deceitful desires that we're born into. Every one of us, when we're first born into the world, we're born into a world that was made by God. We're born as image bearers of God, and yet the, the world that we're living in is a fallen world, and therefore we're fallen people that are born into the world. That's the old self, is what the Bible calls that. And that's why Jesus shows up. And when Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, come to him at night to ask him how he might be saved, Jesus tells him, you must be born again. That's the, sec- that's the second movement, to the new self. Nicodemus isn't understanding this, and he says, do I have to be you know, put back into my mother's womb to be born again? And, and Jesus tells him, if you don't understand what I'm saying to you, then how are you a teacher of Israel? You have to be born of the Spirit. There has to be a new birth. There you have to become the new you. The Spirit of God has to come and birth something inside of you to change you from the old you to the new you. And so Paul says here something that was very clear in Jesus' teaching, and it's very clear throughout the whole New Testament. Life together as the church, whether it's Ephesus or Providence, has to include a rejection and a renouncement of our firstborn way of life and a wholesale embracing of a brand new life offered in Jesus. Now I want to pause there because I want to, I think that he's going to address something here and it may not be direct, but certainly indirect. He says, I think that Paul is addressing why many of us have the problem with why the church has heavy emphasis on virtues and a moral standard, and yet much of the church doesn't follow that moral standard. Are you guys walking on this? Why is it that we have a lot to say? Like God has a lot to say about your sexuality. God has a lot to say about the sexual ethic. God has a lot to say about what you say, about what you do. A lot of people don't believe this, but God's very intentional about, he really cares about the most intimate parts of your life. He has a lot to say about those things. And so any church that tries to preach the Bible is saying those things that God says. Now, here's the problem that a lot of people have with the church is they'll say, well, why is it that they believe all of these things, but then when I look at their lives, they look just like mine. Have you ever heard that or said that or thought that or whispered it in church? Or maybe wanted to whisper it, but then you didn't want to get shunned? The reason for this is because behavior follows belief. That's what the scripture says. And yet we all know that each and every one of us struggle whenever, especially when we get into the rest of this text, we struggle with these behaviors. Now, here's what Paul lays out. He says there's the old self, there's the firstborn man, the man that's born for the very first time. His old self that he wakes up in the morning and lives by those desires, those, that wisdom is in futility and it's going one way and one way only. There's no fighting to it, he just goes by his natural desires and he does whatever he wants And that leads to all sorts of calamity. And it leads to all sorts of gratification of desires. But that's the old man. Then Paul says, then there's the Christian. And here's where we make a mistake. We make the mistake of thinking the Christian's only the new man. That's not what Paul says. The Christian is the old man fighting to put off the old man and put on the new man. That's the Christian. So if you've ever wondered why Christians can simultaneously say, I believe this is true and this is how you should live. And then they go off and do something dumb. It's because they have the old man and the new man fighting within them, and the old man sometimes win. And just to be, you know, uh, gender inclusive, the old woman too, okay? You guys get where I'm going with this. The old self. The old you is battling against the new you, and you have every morning this opportunity. This is how Jesus says it. Deny yourself, take up your cross every morning, and follow me. That's killing the old you. With the cross, so you're literally embodying the gospel in this way. You're dramatizing the gospel. Christ went to the cross for us, died, and then he's resurrected into newness of life. So every morning we choose to deny ourselves. We take up our cross and say, the old us is dead in Christ. And we've been buried with Christ in baptism. And now we're going to go into newness of life. So we put on the resurrected Christ by faith. But this mistake is important that you don't make. You're not just the new you. The old man's still coming after you, right? The old self is still trying to battle against you. And this is why we are constantly having to deal with behaviors we know we ought not do, saying things we know we ought not say, thinking things we know we ought not think, or, on the other side, not saying the things that we know we should say, not doing the things that we know we should do, not feeling the way that we know we should feel. You ever been there? Paul says this in Romans, by the way. He says, why is it this dirty and filthy man that I am? I always do the things I shouldn't do, and I don't do the things that I should do. And then he says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He's talking about the old man. The very next verse says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's he's come to give us victory. He's given me the new self. So this is the battle, the old self and the new self. So Paul further defines the phrase, walk in a manner worthy of your calling by telling you that this is something we're supposed to be wrestling with. And it's best, we do this in our discipleship classes and in our membership classes. One way to think of this is to think about it through the paradigm of head, heart, and hands. So Paul says, the darkened mind, so what you think, what you know, what you believe is true, what's going on in in between your two ears, the darkened mind, your head, can cut you off from the life of God. It makes you alienated in your heart. The life that's supposed to well up in you because you're in communion with God. Because your mind is, your head is darkened, you don't want to live in the reality of God. Then your heart becomes in these futile efforts. And that manifests itself most profoundly through your hands, through your behaviors. This is why Jesus said, you will know the tree by its fruit. Or Jesus went on to say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus was saying that what we believe about God will ultimately affect our hearts and then out of our hearts, our behaviors flow, right? That's what Paul's saying here. Another way to say it is that by fighting against the reality of God, truth, head, we then satisfy our restless cravings or he calls them corrupt desires. So, you know, the most base part of you that just wants to eat that cookie. You satisfy that and then we act out in atrocious ways to dehumanize people. That's the behavior part of it. Okay, so what are we doing? We're fighting to agree with God. We're fighting every day. Putting off the old self is fighting to agree and think God's thoughts after him. Believe God's truth after him. And what happens then is that satisfies not our base desires, not like, hey, I'm hungry for a cookie, but like, you know that good feeling after you made that decision to eat a salad? You're not like super feeling great, but you know like, hey man, this is gonna, and it actually leads to like, you look in the mirror and you're like, I look better. It's like, it's, it's playing the long game, Right? It's like it may not feel good immediately. You really wanted like fettuccine Alfredo and you got like Panera. But like the healthy Panera, not like the turkey chili Panera, you know? The deeper longings of your soul is what the truth of God comes to actually assuage, actually satisfy. The base desires is what the world offers. And when we don't allow ourselves to to settle for our base desires, but we get down to the deeper parts of our heart, the truth of God satisfies our soul the deepest longings of our heart. And guess what results? We act in ways that honor God and honor people. That always leads to life. Okay, now Paul has a line in here that I want to bring your attention to because Christians, if we miss this, we also make a big mistake. Verse 21, he says this. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What an assumption that is. Paul says this. He's writing to a church, but he's saying... If you try to apply what I'm teaching you, but you don't know Jesus, that will go poorly for you. Trying to lay upon someone morality without introducing them to Christ is like trying to put out the fires of hell with a water pistol. It's not, it's not helpful. We know Christians, here's what Christians believe. Christians don't believe virtuous moral living is possible apart from Jesus. It's not what we believe. We believe because Christians don't believe that ultimately Christianity is only a virtuous moral system. We believe that Christianity is about Christ crucified and resurrected coming to save us from sins and that there are implications of that truth that then are birthed in our hearts and it leads us to life. Christianity is not all of the list of things I'm about to tell you. That's what comes out of meeting Jesus. So the first step is introducing people to Christ and what flows from that is life and behaviors that accord to life. So Paul says, I'm assuming that you know Jesus here. And I want to say that to you as a Christian, not only because, hey, we don't want to lay morality on those who don't know Jesus, but for you too, if you try to be moral apart from Christ, it's going to go poorly. Because we cannot do it. Okay. Now what does Jesus do, or what does Paul do next? Let's go to verse 25. So now he's about to go through what I would consider to be, it's pretty basic, I think, uh, morality. Like when I first read this, I think the first reaction is going to be, okay, that makes sense. Then we're going to dive into them, It's going to be like, that's way too harsh. But we're going to get somewhere, I think. Um, In some ways, this kind of reminds me of the Ten Commandments. Like the Ten Commandments, you read them and you're like, okay, that was kind of like kindergarten morality. And then we all, if we're honest and we actually look through the Ten Commandments, then we're like, and we break them often. What has gone wrong? That's kind of what this is like. So let's just read through them. I'm going to read all of the whole verse and then I'm going to explain it and just kind of walk through it. Verse 25. He says, okay, so therefore... Because we're putting off the old self and putting on the new self, he's going to give you examples of what that looks like. Having put away falsehood or lies, let each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You put off the old self by stop lying. You put on the new self by speaking the truth. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who's in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as is fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, but let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Okay, let's take these one at a time. The first thing he says is that the Christian refuses to lie and chooses to speak the truth. So think old self, new self. It's not just that God says we ought not to lie. That's the starting line. I think that's a good starting line. But the Christian also then says, and we ought to speak the truth to one another in love. We we covered this last week. Why is that? Well, in the scripture, the Bible tells us that Satan is called the father of all lies. Meaning that one of the ways, one of the ways that Satan leads the way in his in his attempt to overthrow God's kingdom is to bring deception and lies into the people of God's ears. That's his primary. He always wants to bring half-truths, twisted truths, lies into your life. So Paul's saying here that what we ought to do is definitely not lie, which would mirror him, but then putting on the new self is mirroring your heavenly father. So it's not just that you reject the father of lies in his way, it's that you embrace the heavenly father who speaks truth always. This is why Jesus looked at his disciples and says, I am the truth. Like he embodied the truth. And so for us to follow Jesus is to be about speaking the truth. I would say this, and then I'm going to move on. There is nothing more adventurous that you can tell your kids to do than tell them to live their lives telling the truth all the time. You don't ever know where that will lead you. It will lead you in great times. It will lead you in the worst of times. It's the tale of two cities, baby. You're going to go everywhere just to decide I'm going to tell the truth. Okay. Then he goes on. He says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Every one of us has probably heard this at some level. What is he saying? We reject unbridled anger by seeking reconciliation rather than vengeance. Now listen to this. Unbridled anger is lashing out at injustice. That's what it is. And it lays to waste everything that's in its wake. The problem with unbridled anger is not that injustice doesn't exist. It's just that you and I are not the best at discerning What should be the punishment and judgment for sinful behavior and injustice? And so what we do is our anger is kind of an instant judgment on what's happened to us. You guys know this in marriage, right? Something happens, you pop off, I'm getting justice. 30 minutes later, you're like, I may have overreacted. Well, maybe it was much. It's an instant judgment. I want to step in. I want to rush. I want to rush in, cast judgment, ask questions later. It's like ready, shoot, aim, right? That's unbridled anger. Now here's the thing, it always results in the perpetuation of injustice because you jump on someone else, you don't even know all the facts and then and it also leads to a lot of regret. And Paul places his fingers on something here that's true. He talks about Satan being waiting for the opportunity. Satan waits for the opportunity to jump on your passionate anger. And he wants to fuel you to jump towards justice immediately. And here's why, because if you'll jump towards justice immediately and not run to God, then reconciliation and repentance gets passed right over. You won't forgive, you won't reconcile, you'll get even. And so he wants that. He's pushing you towards that. Something bad has happened to you. Even if it's legitimate, go make it right. That's what he does. That's why Paul says, don't allow the enemy or don't allow the sun to go down on your anger because it gives the enemy an opportunity. If there's one thing we can be sure of, if you meddle and start to turn over in your mind just how angry you are at your enemies. The result of that will be bitterness and resentment, a root that is so difficult to weed out. So what does is, what is Paul encourage? He says, go reconcile, go bring life, go, go get forgiveness, go forgive them. Okay, what's the next one? He says, stop stealing, get a job, get a raise, share your money. It's basically the idea here, right? Like we reject thievery and embrace hard work and generosity. This seems like a really good principle, right? Any, dad, any good dad would tell his son this, like, hey, finds out his son's stealing. Hey, cut it out, get a job, get more money, get enough money where you can give. But if you really get down to the principle here, it's much deeper than that. Dishonest gain is always justified the same way. This is whether it's white collar crime, Bernie Madoff, or whether it's petty crime at the, at the dollar store. It's justified the same way. I deserve this, even if it's not mine. For some reason, we justify in our minds, I deserve this. And that entitlement mentality leads us to get something that's not ours and gain something dishonestly because it's rooted in narcissism. It's all about us. Paul flips that and says that we should work hard as unto the Lord and then be generous. Think about the opposite here. Stealing that which is not yours. Put off that old self. Work hard. Get, get the money that you earned, and then in that moment where you realize you earned it, then give it away. It's like the opposite of narcissism. It's other-oriented. And hear me on this. It doesn't mean that the injustice that has happened to you is not real. It's just that the thief seeks to take the place of God and grasp that which is not theirs and make judgments that aren't theirs to give. So we try to take the seat of God. That's the problem. Okay, now let's get to the one that really gets to me because I talk too much. And now that he talks about speech. And when you're a talker, this is trouble. He says, reject speech that deteriorates our neighbor and embrace speech that builds them up. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the way that we talk. It says that the power of life and death is in the tongue. James chapter three says that the tongue is like a fire set on fire from hell and it burns all over the place. If you've ever been in relationships where you're a talker, you've seen this happen, you've really popped off at the mouth, you're really angry, you say all sorts of things that maybe you don't mean, but then you can't take them back. You're spending the next six weeks to six years trying to put out fires that you started, right? It's trouble, it's trouble. You can make someone's day or you can ruin their day with one word, you know? Go to show up to Starbucks, you can make their day, say something kind, you could ruin their day by saying something mean, you can bolster someone's faith or you can cause someone to doubt just with one conversation. You can encourage destructive sin in your neighbor by giving them the sin of flattery with your words or you can warn them with love in an honest admonition with your words. You see how the words it's they're so powerful. This is what C.H. Spurgeon said about words. He said, "More of a man is seen in his words than in anything else belonging to him. You may look into his face and be mistaken." You may visit the house and not discover him. You may scan his business and misunderstand him. But if you hear his daily conversation, you shall soon know him. Listen to this last line. The heart babbles out its secret when the tongue is in motion. That's a rephrasing of Jesus's words when he said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's like a bubbling brook. It can't help but say that which is there. Your mouth betrays you. We all know this. But here's what Paul says. He says, you've died to the old self when you choose to speak words that don't tear down. Guys, we have this weird thing, and ladies, this is just true. There are ways that we pick on each other that actually bring us in towards one another. It's like you're welcomed in by picking on guys, that happens. And then there's like this line where it turns and it's like, whoa, you crossed the line. You know what I'm talking about? Guys, understand what I mean. It's, it's, there's a difference between I'm mocking you and I'm poking fun at you to welcome you in, you know? And we have to be very careful about this because one's deteriorating and diminishing the value of your neighbor and the other one's actually building them up. And they kind of look similar, but you know which one's which. Ladies have a version of this too. It's, uh, it's foreign to me for obvious reasons, but girls have what's like the underhanded compliment. It's the inverse. It's where like they say a nice thing, but they say it and that the gir- only the girls that are involved in the conversation know that it was underhanded. Later I'm like, isn't that sweet that so-and-so said this? No wasn't swayed memes was mean as evil it was from the darkness. I'm like, what? It's like, I really took that as a compliment. And then I'm, and then I'm second guessing myself. I'm like, she said I would look good too. You know, I'm like, what is it? We have to be careful with our speech. Are we building up or are we tearing down? Are we, are we taking someone who's an image bearer of God and looking for ways to speak life and grace into them that brings them up into the truth of Jesus, or are we looking to tear them down so that we can stand on their shoulders and feel a little bit bigger? Getting a laugh at someone's expense just to feel a little bit bigger in the moment. Paul says it's it's death. And then he ends this portion by saying this, this drunk drawer of terms. He says, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, clamor, slander, malice. We've got to put all of them away, put all of them to death. Now, here's the thing. You can read this portion of scripture through two eyes, and I'd like for you to do so. The first one is this. When you read this and you actually try to define it, look at it as how do I live my life? Do I I measure up to that? And this is where we get convicted, right? We we fall short of this. Hopefully when you read that, you don't think like, yep, nailed it. Great. Now what happens is you might even be tempted to justify why you're not like, this is an impossible standard. Who lives like this? Like we haven't even gotten to the sexual ethics of the scripture yet, but you're already probably like, this is craziness. No one could live up to this. Now here's what I want to do that might help. Now look at it through a second lens. How do you long for others to act and live in relation to you? And then read it. Here's what I know without knowing you, is that you probably almost see it as a given. Of course, they better not steal from me. How dare someone speak evil of me? Someone's going to call me fat? Never. Blasphemous. You probably read this stuff and you just—you probably assume that, of course, that's how everybody should treat me. And that needs to make you pause and ask the question, why is it when we read this through that lens, we're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But when we put ourselves underneath the microscope, we say, God's a little unjust. He seems to be a little strict. The answer is because you're battling your old self still. Your old self's telling you, you your old self's trying to convince you that God's too strict and not you're the problem. Your old self wants you to know, you're fine how you are. You can still make fun of Billy. It's funny. Everybody laughs. Just not Billy. Your old self wants you to think, that's okay. That's permissible. It's all good. Not a big deal. Everybody does that. But the new self looks in the mirror and says, ooh, there's something in my teeth. It's gross. I need help. All right. But how do we apply it? This is key. The Christian that writes all these things down on their mirror tomorrow in toothpaste and tries to look at them and obey them is going to struggle. Right? You might do good and then you're going to fall off. It's a lot like a New Year's resolution. You start working out, try to get trim, then you eat chocolate cake by February. You know, it's, it's difficult. But Paul gives us the key to apply here. What is his key to apply? Verse 30, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Listen to this. There's two things. Number one, the Holy Spirit is active in your life if you're a Christian. It's not a que- it's not an open question. It's a certainty. If you're thinking, "Court, I just don't know. I don't know if I if I have the Holy Spirit." I don't know. listen to me. If you have trusted Christ, the promise of the Bible is that the Holy Spirit is active in your life, and that we are actively either responding to Him or not. We either we are either pleasing God or grieving the Spirit of God. The Spirit is prompting you. The Spirit does come and tell you that's something you ought not have said. Or that's something that you ought not to have done. The Spirit does that. Or the Spirit says, this is your time to speak up. This is your time to do the right thing. The Spirit always does this because the Spirit lives within every Christian. And if you ask, I don't know if that's true of me, then I would ask you to pray this morning that God would make you more tender-hearted towards the Spirit because he is speaking. So that's number one. Remember that when the moments matter most, the Spirit is there. Okay? Now, number two. We also make the mistake, I think, as Christians, of thinking we have too high of expectations for communal accountability and too low of expectations for the Holy Spirit's accountability. Let me explain. Communal accountability is helpful and necessary, but it is, there is nothing that compares to the Spirit of God strengthening you and guiding you to live in a manner that honors God when the rubber meets the road. Like if you're too heavily focused on your friend that's in your accountability group, being the one that calls you up at that that perfect moment in order to fix everything for you, you're missing if the spirit of God is there in that moment and is there to to not only hold you accountable because your friend can be like, hey, don't screw up, don't be an idiot. The spirit can strengthen you. Let me give you, the your friend can't give you wings to fly, but the spirit can. (laughs) Does this make sense? Here's what I've seen happen. When people are too concerned about letting their neighbor down, like I don't want to sin because then I got to go into accountability. Then I let my friend down. You've made your friend God. You've made your friend the one that you're living righteously for. And that never, that never ends up well. You live as unto Jesus and your friends there to encourage you and to love you and to hold you accountable, but you're living as unto the Lord, not as unto your friend. Here's what happens when you do this. After you fall into the trap of making your friend God, they become a too harsh of a God because they're giving you all these commands and you recognize hypocrisy in them. So here's what happens. People will say the church has too high of a moral standard, that's why I don't like it. It's because you think that moral standard's coming from your accountability partner and not God. When your moral standard's coming from the Lord, then you know that it's not it's not your accountability partner that's doing it, it's the Lord. And he's there not only to tell you the truth of the law, but to give you the grace of the gospel. The law alone, the letter will kill, but the grace of the gospel brings to life. The spirit alone can simultaneously tell us where we're sinners and then save us from that sin by leading us to Jesus. Communal accountability only serves to bolster the spirit's work in our lives. It can't replace the spirit's work in our lives. And moving towards maturity is making that jump to recognize that your neighbor's there to be a help. Your neighbor's not there to be God. And then lastly, of course, when we make that move, we are reminded the, the most motivating force towards holiness is a love for God that the Spirit births in your heart. It's not judgment. Listen to me. Every parent wants your child to make a move from they do the right thing because they're afraid of a spanking to they do the right thing because it's the right thing. Are we on, on track with this? Like, don't we all want our children not just to not run red lights so they don't go to jail But they don't run red lights because they realize it could kill someone. I think we're all parents probably. For the most part, that seems pretty elementary. We all want to get there. Maturity in the Christian life is we move beyond being afraid of God's judgment. And we move towards agreeing with God's truth that it's actually life what he's telling me. Like when God tells you that you ought to pursue him and have a monogamous relationship with your wife and love the wife of your youth, he's not holding out on you. He's bringing you into something. You walk in with this? And there's a difference between I don't want to do something outside of my marriage because I don't want to be punished and I don't want to do that because that leads to death. Those are two different things. And the only motivating force that can do that for you is the Holy Spirit of God who communicates God's love for you. When you have a love for God, you want to be obedient to God. And here's what Paul tells us. That love for God that you have is because he loved you first. Because he loved you first. Okay, last piece here. Let's read verse 32 and then I'm going to close. Now, this is kind of the key on how this all works together. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness. My wife always gets on to me because she says that I'm too utilitarian. She buys things for the house and they make the house look pretty and I don't find any use for them because it's not useful. You know, I just feel like it was dead money. I'm like, okay, well, that's a Plant, but it's going to die. You know, I want something that's useful. And I think a lot of guys are like this, like tool, useful, you know? You get new shoes, useful. Two pair of shoes, questionable. Three, unreasonable. Why do I need three shoes? Well, six. (laughs) Right? Paul is doing something here. He is giving us something with deep truth, deep, profound beauty, and really useful for the church. What he's telling you here is that there is no way for the church to survive without an abundance of mercy, grace, forgiveness, and tenderheartedness toward each other. Because pursuing holiness includes falling flat on your face over and over and over again, and even offending each other. And if you don't have forgiveness and grace and mercy and tenderheartedness, you'll just be very judgmental. You'll just have infighting. You'll just have bitterness. You'll just have anger. You'll just have people with grievances against each other and not mercy towards one another. You'll just have people that hate each other, not love each other. Because here's what's for certain. All you have to do is try to live like Jesus to fail. Anybody ever tried it? Like I remember when I was a kid, I used to try to do the walking on water thing. Never worked. Like just running across the pools. Anybody did that? Like sprint across the pool? It's like that with behaviors. It's like that with morality. Try to, I don't know, how about this one? Ephesians chapter five, we're getting there. I think Corey's gonna preach this one. Love your wife as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. Any husbands tried that one out recently? Where are you at on a scale from one to 10 on that? Now I want you to notice something important here. As far as, my, as, far as I know, the Bible follows this pattern. There's not, to my knowledge, in the entire New Testament, a single command for us to, expect or demand that other people treat us how we would like to be treated but there is a command to treat others as we would like to be treated now i know what you're thinking you're like listen if we're trying to build a beautiful community of grace here court shouldn't i be permitted to expect a little bit of reciprocation from these people (laughs) okay i get it fair enough Here's what I'll say. I'm not advocating for cynicism. Like, I don't want you to wake up in the morning just thinking everyone's a savage and they're not going to care about me, so I just got to forgive them blindly. That's not what I'm saying. I think there's some real benefit from wrestling through hurt with each other and forgiveness and great, those things are good. But here's what I want to say. I think what Paul's getting at is that we have to refuse the temptation to make someone else the villain of our life story. Like it may feel good for a season to think that you are the way that you are because of external factors, including people around you. But here's what the Bible teaches is that all that does is rob all the room for you to look in the mirror and confront the real villain of your story, which is looking back at you every morning. Here's what I can promise you. I know this is harsh. Happy Father's Day. No one's, no one's betrayed you more than you. No one's lied to you more than you. No one's done what is terrible for your life more than you've done what is terrible for your life. No one's been more of an enemy to your life than you ever. And I know that without exceptions. And Paul is saying when we spend our lives focusing more on what other people have done to us, it robs us of the chance to look in the mirror and realize the villain's staring, standing there. And that may seem masochistic, but you know what it robs you of? Then Jesus steps in and just dispenses abundance of grace and says, I love that guy in the mirror. I died for that guy in the mirror. I died for her. All that imperfection. All I love them. And then he expends his grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And guess what that does for you? It allows you to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving to people because you actually have a well to draw from. You know how hard it is to forgive if you have not been forgiven? Jesus said it like this. He who is forgiven much forgives much, and he who is forgiven little forgives little. The Pharisees couldn't forgive the woman caught in adultery because they hadn't looked in the mirror. It was all about the externals. Big bad Rome was the problem rather than them in the mirror were the problem. And it doesn't mean Rome wasn't a problem. It just means that the most life-giving way to live your life is to look at yourself in the mirror and actually address the thing that you can address. The most fruitful and effective way to spend your time is to concern yourself with your own obedience to the Lord and stop trying to police the obedience of your neighbor. Stop trying to chase down vindication for yourself on perceived real or not real offenses. If you do that, I promise you, it will lead you to joy. If you try to police everybody else's life and chase down all the offenses in your life and get justice, it will lead you to bitterness, resentment, and death. Where does this manifest itself most profoundly? I'll just, it's Father's Day. Let's talk about marriage. Living with another human being Raising kids with them, managing finances with them, sharing household chores with them, choosing movies with them, most of all, making decisions with them. The marital relationship, if anything, is ripe for conflict. I mean, it is ready made for fighting. And it's no wonder then that marriages often fall into resentment. You ever thought about this? Why resentment is so easy in marriage to fall into? One of the most prominent ways that we fall into resentment is that we focus so heavily on policing our spouse's behaviors rather than our own. And this is easy to do, right? Because here's why. And if you haven't thought about why that's easy to do, I'll tell you. It's because no one affects you your life more than your spouse's behavior. They actually affect you. Tony at work that annoys you and eats Cheetos and comes and talks to you real close after coffee, he's only going to do that for that morning. But when your spouse does it every day for 20 years, that's more effective. But that's why Paul's admonition here rings so true. You might be asking, like, why is this not a reasonable way of life for me to police my spouse's behaviors? Because, I mean... In the famous words of my wife, you need to know the truth. <laughs> I love her so much. She just is able to speak truth to me, sometimes in love. <laughs> so I say, okay, communication's good. But follow, Paul says, follow me on a more excellent way, and I want to ask you a certain questions. Before you jump to the police car to try and figure out what's going wrong with your spouse, have you been encouraging your spouse recently? Have you been praying for your spouse recently? Are you looking for creative ways to communicate that unique, special love like you did whenever you first asked your spouse to marry you guys? You know what I'm talking about? Like that you were writing poetry and stuff and then now it's 20 years later and you're going to sleep snoring in your boxers and you haven't even kissed her goodnight. Are we serving our spouse as Christ served us? Are we speaking well of our spouse in private and in public? Are we checking our anger at the door? After a long day, you know that you're about to pop off. you checking that anger at the door? Are you checking your own speech before you police their speech? Are you questioning your own motivations in the argument before you question their motivations? How about this one? Are you listening to them for understanding or to craft a really good rebuttal? I say that to say, you might be saying, well, I'm not married. That's unhelpful. No, that's for every relationship of all time. Anywhere you go, have you checked yourself? If you find yourself looking to police everyone else, Paul's admonition is to look in the mirror because there's life there. Because the spirit's voice is speaking to you about you. Famous story from the life of Peter is right at the end before Jesus ascends. He asks Peter, what will happen for this man, John, his friend? What are you going to do with John? And Jesus turns to him and says, what is it to you if I allow John to live until I return? You follow me, Peter. Now you might be asking, does does Jesus think that Peter shouldn't care about John? No, he's saying he shouldn't care about him in that fatherly way like he rules his life. Jesus is the one running your neighbor's life. He's the one who's speaking to your neighbor. You would do well to spend a lot more time praying for your neighbor rather than policing your neighbor. And you would do a lot better praying for your spouse rather than policing your spouse. Because here's one thing we can be certain of. God's more committed to your sanctification than you are. And God is certainly more committed to your neighbor's sanctification than you are. (laughs) You want their sanctification for every sort of reason under the sun. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. I love them and I want them to grow in Jesus and they annoy me and I want them to stop annoying me. Jesus wants their sanctification because he loves them with a pure motivation. So I want to end with this thought How do we live like this? The answer is right in the text. Not grieving the Holy Spirit means that we pray that prayer that was at the end of each church of Revelation the last week or the last few weeks when we were going through it. God, give us ears to hear what your Spirit says to us. Give us tenderheartedness to feel that which you want us to feel. Let us know what you want from us. I joked with the 9 a.m. I said, I know some of you spouses are going to be tempted to get in your car and tap your... Sp-. You hear what he said there? <laughs> Don't do it, okay? Instead, go and say, God, what do you want me to do differently? What is it that you're saying to me? What is it that I need to wrestle with? Give me a tender heart, Lord, that I might respond to you. And then in so doing, what you're going to experience, this is a promise from the scripture, not me, so you could take it to the bank. What you experience is, the Bible calls it times of refreshing. All of a sudden there's joy. All of a sudden, instead of resentment for your neighbor because they never actually get it, you start feeling joyful because God's poured out mercy on you. Because when you recognize, when you look in the mirror, all of your faults and flaws, God pours out the love that he had for you on the cross and says, that's how much I still love you. 1 John chapter 3 says, see what sort of love the Father has for us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. That's what he thinks of you. And it's that motivation that that you're coming to your Father that changes you. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, I have so much to say in so little time. And so I just want to simply ask, give us that tender heart. Holy Spirit, we want to hear from you. Each of us individually, we want to hear from you and we want to respond. For those under the sound of my voice that wrestle with that, I pray that you would open their hearts up for freedom. You'd open their hearts up and they wouldn't be calloused. That you'd open their hearts up and let them know that there's life in you that there's forgiveness in you, that there's grace in only you, Lord Jesus, and in all of our faults and flaws that you love us and have died for us. Give us that truth this morning, God. And we ask that our sensitive hearts would lead us, lead us toward you and not away. We thank you. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.